When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The president wakes up at the White House this morning, not traveling to Mar-a-Lago for the holidays as planned because of his government shutdown. That government shutdown he claimed he would take credit for, and he is. It's not chaos. It's, uh, it's basically the president is probably one of the few people that's willing to play a long game as opposed to all these little blips and ticks in the market. Mulvaney's predecessor, General John Kelly, tried to rein in Trump. But according to Politico, Mulvaney doesn't plan to try. I am honored to be the new zookeeper as my first official act. Unlock all the cages. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Merry Eve! The war on Christmas never goes on furlough, so neither does Trumpcast. We're here in the Yuletide with Martha Brokenbro, who's written a book for kids about the not-twinkly, not-jolly, not-Santa that is Donald Trump. It's called Unprecedented, a biography of Donald Trump. And I really love this book. It takes as its pretext that adults chronically lie to kids, especially about things that frighten or anger them, and that budding young American voters need a clear, factual story about President Trump. This book gives, in a straightforward way, Trump's backstory, his family, his rise to power, his racism, the Russia investigation, and all the things that are always represented to us as complicated, but that can, with patience, be understood by anyone of any age. This book breaks the mystification of our times, and we all need a little of that. Welcome, Martha. Thanks so much for having me. Why do a biography of Donald Trump for the children of America? It's a great question, and especially specifically young adult, and we can talk about that and what that means. But I woke up the day after Election Day astonished at what had happened after registering my, my shock and dismay, and not for political reasons, entirely for reasons of character. I started thinking about, oh, my gosh, what is going to be written for young people? The traditional presidential biography for young readers is a shiny, happy thing. And it made me feel ill to think that Trump would be repackaged in a glossy and deceptive way for kids. It's like feeding them junk food and pretending that that's okay. It's not. The book has a lot to do with lies. It's a biography, after all, of Donald Trump. But you also have some general thoughts about why we lie to children in particular. You know, I write for young adults, and that is generally considered to be readers 12 and up. Now, a lot of people think that kids should not be exposed to anything negative. They think, oh, young people should have childhoods. They should be kept innocent. And there's much criticism. This is sort of a niche thing. But if you talk to anybody in my line of work... There's a lot of frustration with criticism that young adult literature is dark. You know, it's got things in it like war and rape and dystopia and blah, blah, blah. And it's so Mm -hmm. dark. And what are we feeding these kids? Here's the thing. Those things actually exist in the real world. 
many young people have experienced negative things. You can find almost any brown-skinned child in elementary school, and they will be able to tell you an experience they've had of racism if they fall into categories where they might be considered immigrants or where they might in fact be immigrants. Some of those kids have received taunts at the hands of their young peers. So Mm -hmm. the idea that we treat kids and childhood and youth as this zone of life, which entirely is screened from suffering and hardship, Mm -hmm. is nonsense. The reason adults don't want to tell kids the truth is because it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's yucky and it's awful. Mm -hmm. And I submit that it is baloney or an even less savory term when adults say, oh, we're giving kids stuff that's too negative, which doesn't mean that we have to terrify young people, but we absolutely owe them the truth. I was very worried about representing Trump to my children as the catastrophic danger, uh, the catastrophe that he is for democracy and for our country, because my parents had done that with Ronald Reagan. And I remember their fear was passed on to me, their fear about nuclear annihilation and winter. I ended up being in street busking plays about being the last child on earth to raise awareness of our imminent demise. I've said on the show before, we were instructed in school to write letters to Yuri Andropov asking that our small town in New Hampshire be named a target site. So we died in the blast and not the fallout. I remember that. I remember because we had in my middle school a group called Target Seattle came and they did a whole assembly and I was terrified. And and I think you and I are probably about the same age. Yes, I think so. Do you remember the movie The Day After? It was required reading in schools. This was a fake news broadcast like War of the Worlds that made it look like we were under attack beginning in South Carolina. (gasps) I'm still traumatized. But as you say in the book, so the exaggerations of parents are no better than the minimizing of the harm posed by this president. And what you did for kids is surprisingly inventive, which is to bring out primary sources and just state the facts as they would interest anyone of any age. So facts about Trump's fellow travelers, facts about his childhood and his ancestry and his business. It's fairly unshaded unless you believe, as I do, that a simple recitation of the facts of how his grandfather and father made their fortunes is itself galling. Then otherwise, you're reading facts. I mean, these are things about how much did Fred Trump owe on XYZ mortgage? What did he say about XYZ controversy? And those things, I do think, are useful to kids because whether you have a parent who's downplaying the menace or exaggerating the menace, like I do, you want to be able to form your own opinions and having in front of you simple facts would seem to be very useful. And we live in this really weird age where lots and lots of people are unable to tell a fact from an opinion. Mm. Pew Research has done good stuff on this. I don't want to create a false equivalency here. People who vote Republican are actually three times more likely to confuse an opinion with a fact. Mm. So we are living in an era where people are not so good at that or where an opinion that confirms one of their biases then is perceived as a fact. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. When we give kids or when we give anybody facts, we don't have to include the conclusions. I mean, there's nothing in my book that says Trump is going to turn America into what Germany was in 30s. 
Mm-hmm. There are things that say this is what Hitler did and this is what Trump did. People can draw their own conclusions. And that is where perhaps when we were kids, we weren't just being given the facts. We were being given the conclusion and the conclusions are what's scary. The facts can certainly be galling, as you said, um, but we don't necessarily need to draw dire conclusions. Now, it is totally reasonable when it comes to Trump to be appalled by the Mm -hmm. life that he's lived. That doesn't mean you're biased. That means you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. Here's another thing that happens all the time is people try to mitigate stuff. They anticipate, well, if I say this, then people will just think that I'm biased. So I'm going to couch it in this weird language. That's where we get stuff like, instead of saying Trump was racist in his attitude toward a judge of Mexican descent, we say stuff like he made racially charged statements. What does that even mean? Yeah, he touched a nerve or he offended people. As though the reaction is the story and not the offense. Yeah. If you say someone can't do their job because they're of Mexican descent, that's racism. Yeah. It would serve us to know what the definition is and not to dance around it. That was one of the things that I really thought hard about in the book is what's misrepresentation? What's a lie? What's misleading? What's disinformation? What's misinformation? Um, Because we've received all of those categories. It is interesting that you actually reproduce and liberally quote primary documents, including Donald Trump's first poem, a letter written by his grandfather. That's as close to unadorned facts as possible. I mean, these documents exist. One other thing that makes it complicated to tell a clean story without, as I say, embellishment is that Trump and his forebears, I'm really interested in your recounting of the story of the Trump family, were regularly lying about themselves. Let's get to this letter that I find just completely riveting, where having this is Friedrich Trump, Trump's grandfather, born in the 1860s in Karlstadt in Bavaria. You straighten this out for me. I know that he got in the holy trinity of gambling, girls, and liquor. And horse meat. Oh, horse meat, selling horse meat in his restaurants. Let me give an unbiased account of that. Sex workers, bars, and I don't know what to call horse meat. Unlikely proteins. But anyway, (laughs) tell us the story of Friedrich Trump. He was born in Germany, or what became Germany. His parents, they were grape farmers. His father died when he was a kid, and they needed him to go out and earn a living, so he became a barber. But Kallstadt was a small enough town that he couldn't make a living doing that. Also, he was coming right up against the age where German boys 16 and up owed three years of military service. So that wasn't too appealing to him for a number of reasons. It wasn't just that he could certainly die. Also, he was less healthy. He was a weakling, Mm -hmm. to use a word from the Trump lexicon. So his best bet was to follow his sister using something that some people today call chain immigration (laughs) and go to the United States. Or seeking a better life. Give us your tired, your poor, your weaklings who are dodging drafts and oppression. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So he arrived in New York and worked for a while as a barber, but he was a smart guy who saw opportunities. And after Seattle burned Mm -hmm. in a fire. He knew that the town would need to be rebuilt and the workers would need to be fed. So he went into the restaurant business. Now, it was a pretty common thing for certain types of restaurants to have rooms in the back 
where mm, meals of the flesh were consumed. Mm-hmm. And so it's highly likely. I know that Gwenda Blair says it's a certainty. Other biographers are like, well, we don't know for sure that he was engaging in prostitution or not himself, but serving up women to customers. But there's a really high likelihood. And certainly when he was in Yukon territory, that was going on. But he ended up doing quite well in mm-hmm. business. And not everything was legal. He Mm -hmm. built on property that somebody else owned and cut corners here and there. But he eventually made quite a lot of money, went back to Germany, Mm -hmm. met a woman, married her, brought her to the United States. But then she got homesick and he had made her a promise that if she ever got homesick, they'd go back to Germany. So they did and they wanted to stay. But his draft dodging caught up to him. And that's where this letter came from, where he starts most serene, most powerful prince regent, most gracious regent and lord. (laughs) This uh, is to the German monarch. It's amazing. (laughs) And And then here Trump starts to represent himself not as a Sheldon Adelson style casino runner or a runner of girls or liquor, but as a pious diligent student. yeah. Absolute obedience to the high authority. Tell me about the letter. The language is, well, we were confronted all at once as if by a lightning strike from fair skies with the news that the <laughs> high royal state ministry has decided that we must leave our residence in the kingdom of Bavaria. We were paralyzed with fright. Our happy family life was tarnished. My wife has been overcome by anxiety and my lovely child has become sick. And oh, here's my, my favorite sentence. Why should we be deported? This is very, very hard for a family. Amazing. This letter, it's a treasure. It also reads like parody, like so many of the times that Friedrich Trump's grandson tries to sound fancy or like an adult. I think of Mark Twain parodies of this kind of language, like con men who are on the road talking in grandiose ways. If I were writing fiction and if I were having a villain try to embrace the high language of toady. Yes. Um, you know, I, 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 this is how I would write it. And then my editor would probably say, mm, you might <laughs> dial it down a little. It's a little bit over the top. No one um, would do this. I mean, it's also how, I don't know about Friedrich Trump, but it's how President Donald Trump likes to be addressed in the dear leader idiom. <laughs> one thing that's present in this letter, which is like a microcosm of a certain part of the Trump mentality is how far the Trumps are willing to open up the Delta from the truth and their self-exaltation. So if you are probably running a house of prostitution for minors and serving horse meat and running casinos and gambling cards, then do you instantly style yourself as pious and perfect and subservient to the prince? How about just closing the gap a little bit? You know, it's like Trump saying, I've never been bankrupt. I mean, these things are on record or biggest inauguration crowd in history, which is, I know, something you treat. Why not just let the crowd be what it is or say, like, we had a nice crowd? Why does it have to be the exact geometric opposite of the truth? (laughs) Because the lies like that work. A big, just brazen, unabashed lie is going to work with a certain number of people. And then if if you say, oh, but that wasn't true, then someone just says, oh, well, you're just biased and you'll look for anything and it doesn't matter anyway. Yeah. And so you almost get into this situation where as 
a writer and as a journalist, you have to say, mm. okay, so I know this is going to happen. What's the stuff that I must write about and must talk about so that I don't have to waste time engaging in that pointless debate with people who refuse to accept facts? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is so crazy-making to have the public discourse led by the tweets of Donald Trump and the falsehoods of his administration, that we've all had to correct the gaslighting a little bit with something. And this book is just a very elegant antidote to that kind of gaslighting, and it's sanity-preserving, because you just take the time to say, he said he was Swedish, he's not Swedish. One of my approaches is to say, all right, which facts matter? And those are the facts that are borne out in patterns. Huh. And the whole lying about nationality, why did he lie about his nationality? Well, he was seeking to avoid bias of people. When you put that into the context where he is using someone's nationality as a reason to discriminate against them, yeah. he knows perfectly well what he's doing. Yeah. That to me seemed an important choice and something important to include. I kept asking myself 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, am I creating something that's going to be reliable and useful for people who don't have the same allegiances to the political parties mm -hmm. that we might. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to create something that was factual mm -hmm. and represented patterns and gave the view of the whole that was going to be reliable for the long term. One of the studies of fake news that most interested me was the MIT one that showed all things being equal, people are more likely to share false news than true news. There's something about fiction that just is exciting. And then also, they're more likely to share disgusting or shocking news, something that hyperstimulates the body than they are other news, again, all things being equal. And even there was an example of a pro-Trump story, a factual account that you can imagine pleasing a Trump partisan that was not shared because it was too banal. It was that Trump flew a sick boy to a hospital on his own plane. The political bias was superseded by their interest in lies and especially the ones that produce this hyperstimulated feeling in the body. Luckily, a lot of the true stories you tell in this book produce that feeling. And now I want to get to Fred Trump. So this is the son of Friedrich and the father of the president. You get into details I didn't know about Fred as a landlord and a builder, and especially this detail about Woody Guthrie, the folk singer. Tell us about that. It's pretty fascinating. In 1927, he was arrested in a Klan rally. It's not totally clear whether he was there as an observer or as a participant. He wasn't charged with a crime. So he kept building houses. He also went temporarily into the grocery business after the stock market crashed. But as soon as he saw an opportunity to take over a mortgage service company that had been corrupt and crashed, he slipped right back in. So after the depression, mm -hmm. lots and lots of builders were out of work and the 
country wanted to find a way of getting people to own homes again. Mm -hmm. And so they started the Federal Housing Administration, and that began to insure banks that lent money to build housing. Mm -hmm. So now Fred Trump didn't have to come up with all his own funds to build houses. He could get great big loans and go after big plots of land. Mm -hmm. And he did incredibly well at this. And being the savvy guy he was, he saw the loophole in the program. So um, it's, it was fairly complicated, but basically, you know, he said, it's going to take me this long and cost this much money to build these housing developments. And so he would get a loan guaranteed by the government for that whole thing. If he could build more quickly and it cost less, guess who got to keep the windfalls? So Mm -hmm. Trump got to keep those windfalls. Mm -hmm. And what it meant really was that rents were higher, that apartments cost more money. So his personal profit was costing his landlords and it was costing the American taxpayer. And this got him in trouble with the federal government, including the president who, Eisenhower, who called Trump and developers um, who were abusing this program, sons of bitches. Hmm. How did they come to Eisenhower's attention and also sons of bitches? So is there a class tension or is it at the time government had much more moral authority than it does now and also authority over businessmen? I can't answer really the mindset of Eisenhower and why it made him so angry, although we are definitely in a different time. I mean, Mm -hmm. it used to be that businesses were local and it was part of the community. And Mm -hmm. now we live in this era where corporations are huge and they wield vast amounts of power and they get lots and lots of tax breaks. And Mm -hmm. it seems like the economy swings on how stock prices are doing. Mm -hmm. That really doesn't have anything to do with whether you and I have jobs, whether our neighborhoods are thriving, whether the kids in school are doing well. And so part of the vastness of government and the notion, a false one, I think, that profit is the purpose of business. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. the time we live in. And yeah. if it makes profit, then it's seen as good. But it is kind of a son of a bitch thing to do mm-hmm. is to say, to knowingly pad your costs so that you could get more money out of it. And how these guys got caught was whether this windfall was considered income or capital gains. Mm-hmm. If it had been considered income, the tax rates were higher then. And so Fred would have owed more money. And so he was, again, trying to keep as much as he possibly could. It is incredibly important to know that Fred Trump, he made his fortune in one way as a builder. That was the way that Trump simulated making a fortune. And some people argue that the only real fortune Trump made was the one he inherited from his father, Fred. Oh, man, Trump. It was clear that all of these apartments that Fred Trump built. He didn't rent just to anybody. He knew that women made the rental decisions. And so he, you know, provided roses to them and lectures on childcare and concerts Mm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But they discriminated against people of color. It was not illegal until 1968, after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Then the Fair Housing Act was passed. But in 1950, Woody Guthrie moved into a Trump apartment building 
and wrote a song about Trump stirring up hatred in the blood pot of human hearts. And so when Trump, when he graduated from college and went to work for his father, one of the first things he had to do was to stave off a government lawsuit based on their discriminatory housing practices. So Roy Cohn was the lawyer, the mobbed up, beady eyed, bash in nose lawyer he ended up hiring. All right. Roy Cohn, he's a kind of ghost in the machine for the whole Trump story. What do you tell children about Roy Cohn? This is where a book written for young people has to provide extra context. You and I know what McCarthyism is. Mm -hmm. We've heard of the Rosenbergs, right? And so I provided a little extra context for readers. Roy Cohn, he was a remarkable and smart, smart, smart guy. When he was just a kid, he was writing a column for a newspaper. When he was a young man, he was one of the lawyers prosecuting Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for espionage. It wasn't totally a clean trial. And now knowing what we know about Roy Cohn, the dirt is evident. Uh, So he was also McCarthy's attack dog during the Red Scare. Roy Cohn was virulently homophobic. He happened to be a gay man himself and ended up dying of AIDS shortly after he was disbarred. But in the height of his career, he was representing Trump. He was representing lots of mobsters. He represented the Catholic Archdiocese in New York. Mm. Just a fascinating guy and absolutely full of baloney. And he was the one who taught Donald Trump how to just fight back and fight back vigorously with all sorts of, you know, in whatever way you need to, including just lying outright. Lots of claims that Trump used to make about his wealth. Roy Cohn would just say, oh, yeah, he's got $500 million in the bank in cash. And that was just total lies. I think it's important, as you just did, to make it clear that not all of these people have all of the vices. So some of them are dumb, but some of them are smart. I mean, I sort of tried to make that clear to my kids. Paul Manafort, for example, is very different from Michael Cohen and has different motivations and different skills and is, by all accounts, a smart criminal (laughs) and kind of widely, broadly intelligent. I mean, everyone seems to say that the memo he submitted when he signed on to be campaign manager for Trump is kind of a masterpiece. I think that my kids get tired of hearing they're malevolent, they're stupid, they're ugly. The characters don't stand out. And Roy Cohn is a great example of a dirty trickster, but a clever lawyer who, in some ways, Trump is always trying to find another Roy Cohn. Oh, definitely. I mean, he wanted someone who would lie and do whatever it took to protect him. Trump didn't return the loyalty to Roy Cohn. Mm. When Cohn was really, really ill, Trump had been calling this guy. They would talk on the phone multiple times a day. When Cohn got sick, Trump stopped calling him. Mm. Trump is a self-admitted germaphobe. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine that something like AIDS, which he doesn't have the savvy to understand much about that disease, but Roy Cohn ended up saying, quote, Donald Trump pisses ice water, Mm. you know, because their relationship ended with Cohn's illness. And he was, right, colder, meaner, even than Roy Cohn in the end, or emotionless. If Cohn was no longer going to be of use to him and help him win, 
should Donald Trump care? I'm constantly surprised that people throw in. I'm impressed that Nick Ayers finally someone. He's one of the few people who said no to Trump. You know, he asked him to be his chief of staff and he said no. The turnover in the Trump White House, the staff turnover is unprecedented. I looked at those numbers and I go into them a little bit in the book, but it is not a well-run organization. And there's ample evidence of Trump turning viciously on people who won't do his bidding. I just am surprised that he ever finds anyone who will do his bidding and call him Mr. Trump and bow and scrape before him. It just is amazing that he's able to continue to do this. I've met him once. And do you sometimes think about, my mom sometimes thinks about what exactly she would do if she met him. And I feel like how powerfully you'd be able to resist him and punch him in the face, ideally, or whatever. I mean, do you ever wonder what you would do in his presence? If we were stuck in an elevator together, what would I do and what would I say? You know, I might just pass gas. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) See, you write for young adults for a reason. You just get it. (laughs) It's it's really true. But I've got nothing to say to this man. I think it's appalling what he's doing, the lies and the bigotry, the misogyny, the racism, the corruption, the coziness with criminals, the uh, attacks on the media, the disrespect to the nation's intelligence agencies, uh, to our allies. It's like uh, the list is very long of things that are Americans deserve better. I don't want to leave out the Russia affair and the fact that you didn't leave out a single detail. I guess everyone leaves out one or two details. You probably can't remember the names of some of the assistants of some of the oligarchs in Russia. (laughs) But you do, for a young audience, a beautiful job of breaking down something incredibly complicated and not shying away from the complexity and the fact that it's not quite as cartoonish as some of the other things that are easier to understand for kids. This gets at the major political story of the day and also at the nature of war in the future. What if it all is based on information and technology? What if Russia could start a civil war in the United States without having to blow up a single nuclear bomb? Mm -hmm. And of course, that's an extreme statement. But I think anyone who's been following this as closely as I can would nod and say, yeah, I could see where that would be to Russia's advantage is to have us at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. And it is it is a fact that Russia waged a disinformation campaign. It is a fact mm-hmm. that Russia um, hacked emails, which is a crime, mm-hmm. and disseminated those emails. It's, it's true that, um, you know, in, in terms of espionage, sure, you know, we've peaked at others' emails, and, and we, uh, America has done bad things, too. We haven't leaked them. We haven't thought to impede an election. And my editor and I went back and forth on, she's like, oh, you know, I don't know if there should be too much of this Russian conspiracy. And I just had to say, wait, it's not a conspiracy. Here's all the facts. Here's yeah. all this stuff that we know. And, um, and it also goes to the effectiveness of Trump's misinformation yeah. that he has given. Is that people are, many people, intelligent, well-read people are in doubt 
no, this stuff is important. This will be studied for years to come. And as technology improves, as we are able to fake video and you know really create compelling and false evidence, we absolutely have to be aware that this is not only happening, this is a technique of Vladimir Putin. Russia, mm-hmm. not our friend. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Since epistemology, how we come to know things, is itself a subject of your book, which I hope I've made it clear that it, this is a very sophisticated book. I mean, it's a huge undertaking to tell the story in a frank way, in a heavily documented way that is nonetheless accessible to people 12 and up. I just want to praise you for that. But also the fact that the Alex Jones types, the Jerome Corsi types, who is one of the architects of birtherism, that they've told such outrageous lies has almost driven the center, the kind of norm core of people who use facts to doubt themselves. Why are we told simultaneously that we have to wonder if there's a real grievance at the heart of QAnon? on the one hand, and that we're supposed to doubt the evidence of our eyes and our senses and our, our sense of reason and common sense at the same time. That frustrates me. Oh, it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And as I worked on this book, I kept saying, what is this? How do I know it? You know, does it fit? I didn't want to hold back. If somebody says something that's a lie, I wanted to call it a lie. And I did. And there was one point where I went back and forth with a copy editor because this was regarding the statement that was put out under Don Trump Jr.'s name about that meeting in Mm -hmm. Trump Tower. Mm -hmm. And I called it a misleading statement. And the copy editor suggested removing the word misleading Mm -hmm. um, as needlessly inflammatory. I'm like, no, 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 no. Here's the stuff that's in the statement that is not true, and we know it to be not true, and here's how we know it to be not true. And so it is, that was a statement designed to mislead. And so that was the kind of rigor that I put to this book. I didn't want to make people feel as though I would be, had been fair. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to be fair. And you know how, like, let's say your kids are fighting Mm-hmm. Um, over a cookie, and the quick thing is just to snap the cookie in two and say, "Here, you little pigs! Yeah. You know, you each get half." Yeah, um, stop fighting. But what if this cookie was something that one of your children made, and it was legitimately their cookie? Is it fair to snap it in half and make them share? Yep. No. Yes, cutting the baby in half is not the right move. It's not <laughs> the right move, and we've seen this in other areas. We've seen this with the reporting on climate change. And this is something that used to, when I was a young reporter, mm-hmm. it used to drive me bonkers is to say, you know, have you included both sides? Mm-hmm. Both sides, it's a lovely gesture. They're not always created equally. Yeah. Somebody's opinion that's based on garbage facts is not as valuable as the opinion of someone who has taken good care with the facts and done reasonable reporting. And so Alex Jones, garbage, 
mm-hmm. irrelevant. Pay him no mind. And that's the thing. People have to, you have to earn trust. Yeah. And I don't think we're doing that enough. And I also don't think that mainstream media should be complicit in eroding trust or in the continued gaslighting of Americans. I don't want to see any more headlines where, you know, it says Trump says, you know, insert untrue thing here. Mm-hmm. It's not news. The yes. news is that the president lied. My guest today has been Martha Brokenbro. She's the author of Unprecedented, a meticulous biography of Trump with a colloquial style. Like everything she writes, this book is for, she says, smart kids and juvenile adults. Thank you so much for writing this book, Martha, and for being here. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for today's show. Tell us what you think. Our eyes and ears are glued to Twitter. It's painful. I'm page 88, and the show is always at Real Trumpcast. One more thing before you go. Sign up for Slate Plus. It's $35 for the first 12 months. You probably spent way more on presents for your cat. And this gift gives all year. You get all Slate's shows, not just Trumpcast, and surprise perks. Join us at slate.com slash trumpcast plus. That's slate.com slash trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.